If you have your Bible, turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. There were probably at least two people who looked at the uh, bulletin this morning and got all excited because we got 17 verses to cover in just one sermon and thought we're going to be done with this in a couple of months. But if you looked over to the, uh, to the other side of the bulletin where the incompetent didn't get the right uh, text in, that's next week's sermon. We're going to do the 17 verses and then come back and break them down into smaller pieces. Uh, we may do that for several sections of these first uh, few chapters of Romans because what is here is so terribly important. And that we need to grasp it. Uh, the Apostle Peter talks in his letter about things that pertain to your calling and your election and your life in Christ. And he says, it is my responsibility to remind you of these things. So that's what I'm doing. Reminding you of these things that you already know, but that are so terribly important. One prominent 20th century scholar in his uh, opening sentence of his commentary on the book of Romans said this, The epistle to the Romans is the first great work of Christian theology. And that is certainly true. It is the only part of scripture in which there is found a detailed and systematic presentation of the main features of of Christian doctrine. And since the apostles' thought is founded on and drawn from the Old Testament, primarily Romans is also an excellent introduction to the theology of the Old Testament. This letter is calculated to provide its readers with an incisive insight into the riches of the Old Testament. And with a handbook to the theology by which Christian believers are to live. So it, it, it is not a, as we're going to see, the gospel is not something new. It is not something that just came along in the first century. It is the consummation of something that God had been doing all along. Uh, the book of Romans, as I said last week, is one of the most influential letters that has ever been written. The introduction to Romans is no ordinary salutation because embedded within it is one of the Apostle Paul's classic statements on the person and work of the Redeemer that he preached. He calls Jesus the Son of God that's a very important term. Think of it, we usually get tripped up with paternity and, and, and children when we think of Son of God in our culture today. That would not have been the thought in the first century. To say the Son of God to a Jewish audience is the, the same as saying God the Son. He is co-equal with the Father and the Spirit. And in this salutation, Paul draws no distinction between his Lord and his God. 
As a matter of fact, he says that they are co-equal, that they, you have here in the introduction to Romans the beginning of Trinitarian doctrine. So notice first, the first four verses, the significance of the gospel. In his opening words, uh, Paul relates himself to three things. His master, his spiritual office or gift, and his work. With regards to his master, Paul describes himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. The word servant is used here for the first time in the book of Romans, but it is a very familiar term in the Old Testament. It is used of the relationship between Old Testament believers in Yahweh. It is used of Abraham. It is used of Moses. It is used of David. And the prophets were accorded this dignity as well. You have the word used in the book of Amos and Zechariah and other prophets. Although a Jew and steeped in the thought of the Old Testament, Paul is proud to call himself a slave of Jesus Christ. And that's what the word means. A bond slave. To him, it is evident that to be the servant of Yahweh and the servant of Jesus Christ is one and the same thing. So in his opening words, we're given a hint of the lofty majesty of the Jesus that Paul preached. The phrase servant of Christ Jesus uh, is intended to tell us of a position that Paul holds in the Lord's service. He calls himself a servant uh, to indicate his official status. And then he refers to himself as an apostle to tell us his calling. He is an apostle. He is called to be an apostle, kaletas. He is an apostle, not by human appointment, but by a divinely initiated calling. He did not seek it. Rather, God sought him. He has not gained this position by virtue of his family or his education or his erudition or his ambition or his self-effort. He, his call was like that that came to Abraham, an invitation from heaven. The word apostle is a word that comes into importance in Christian circles. Among uh, the spiritual gifts and the offices of the New Testament church, apostle stood first. An apostle had seen the risen Christ and had been appointed by him to take the gospel to the world. In in the New Testament sense, there are no longer any apostles and haven't been for years and years and years and years. It's important to understand the gift and the office of an apostle because it's going to be tied directly to the canon of Scripture. How do we know whether or not a book is the Word of God? How do we know this letter to the Romans is the Word of God? Because it's one of the tests, one of several, 
is it's given to an apostle. The apostles built on the foundation of Jesus Christ and established the church. Uh, so being an apostle is a very, very important thing. Paul is saying in, in the, that he is called to be an apostle, that he is a divinely authorized representative of Jesus Christ, that he is divinely called to his task. Uh, finally, he relates himself to his work, set apart for the gospel of God, undoubtedly written out of the context of his experience uh, with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. That left an indelible impression on the Apostle Paul, and he was forever fully dedicated uh, to the ministry of the gospel of Christ Jesus. Verse 2, he talks about the roots of the gospel. And the first thing to be said about God's gospel is that while it is good news, it is not new news. Its roots lie firmly embedded in the Old Testament. It is not without reason that the epistle of Romans has been called a theology of the Old Testament because Paul's words promised beforehand are written out of the background of many of the chapters in the book of Isaiah, in the book of Habakkuk as well. The gospel represents not a break with the past, but a consummation of it. Sometimes people get confused about how people are saved in the Old Testament. It's, it's, it's really difficult. It's the same way they are in the New Testament. Abraham did not go to heaven by his works, nor did Moses, nor did David, nor did Isaiah or Jeremiah or Daniel. They all went the same way, through the person and finished work of Jesus Christ, through his death, burial, and resurrection. They look forward to that that we look back to. And all of the sacrifices, all of the, all of the animals that were slain on all the Old Testament altars did not bring anyone salvation. They pointed to the one that would bring salvation. Uh, and we're going to look at that quite a bit closer later on. But the fact that, that, that Paul uses promise beforehand indicates an element of divine foreordination in the gospel. Martin Luther once said, Christianity did not originate by accident or as in the fate of the stars, as many empty-headed people presume, but it became what it was to be by the certain counsel and premeditated ordination of God. This is a continuation of what God has been doing. Verses 2 through 4, Paul gives us the content of the gospel, a concise paraphrase of the gospel that was preached by Paul. He begins by talking about Jesus being the Son of God because He is uh, consubstantial with the Father. He is equal with Him in power and glory, but He is also a man. He is both man and God. 
He is the eternal Son. He has always been the second member of the Trinity, God the Son. But he is also man. So Paul's gospel is both theocentric and Christocentric. He understands the working of the Trinity. And then we're we're brought face to face here with one of the greatest Christological passages in the Bible and one of the most difficult to uh, interpret. Actually, verse 1 through verse 7 is one long sentence in the Greek. Uh, and and, a, and, a, and a, bit diff, a bit difficult. And a lot of different interpretations have come of it. Students of verses 3 and 4 and the description of the Son that they contain are agreed on one thing. Maybe only one thing. But they are agreed that the clauses are arranged in obvious antithesis to one another. Uh, so what did Paul mean by the verb declared to start with? Uh, he was declared to be the Son of God in power. Uh, if you study the word declared, uh, you are led to the conviction that the Greek word that is used here means to appoint. So the antithesis then between the words according to the flesh and appointed suggests that the Son entered the human stage of His existence by birth and this was followed by an appointment to further status. So we're going to look at that. Let me say this here. Paul is is not so much in verses 3 and 4 talking about the distinction between the humanity and the deity of Christ, though he he does that, but he is primarily talking about two stages of Christ's earthly ministry, what we call his humiliation, that is, he is man who lives his life out for these 30 years or more and then goes to a cross, and as a result of the resurrection, then his exaltation. He is now Lord. He's given the name which is above every name. And that's, that doesn't mean Jesus. It means Yahweh. He's given the name I Am. The, the name that he has had from all of eternity. But now that it is given to him because of his obedience to the Father in going to the cross and providing the salvation that God had planned from before the foundation of the world. How do you know, how do you know that the work of Jesus satisfied God the Father? Because he was raised from the dead. God raised him from the dead by the power of a sinless life. His exaltation proves that. Uh, And we're going to talk more about that too as well. Uh, The second antithesis comes between descended from David and the Son of God. That's not difficult. That is a distinction between Jesus being a man descended, humanly speaking, from David uh, and being God the Son. But all of the messianic meaning of being a descendant of David and of occupying that throne 
is in that uh, pair, that antithesis. The other side spells out the significance of God's appointment. Uh, and it seems best to take the words in power with the Son of God, not with the word declared. His sonship in power refers then to the authority that he possesses by virtue of his exaltation. Uh, so sonship begins to merge into lordship. And again, the resurrection is the event that reveals the true meaning of the saving work of the cross. The evidence that the redeeming work has been accomplished with the full approval of the Father is the resurrection. The third antithesis is between according to the flesh and according to the spirit of holiness. Uh, flesh would seem to be a be in regard to his to his human nature again. Now here's where the, the, the real controversy among scholars comes up. What does the spirit of holiness refer to? Uh, if he's declared uh, to be the Son of God and appointed, in what sense could he ever be appointed God the Son according to his divine nature? We can see it according to the human nature. But what about the divine nature? Uh, I think we can take according to the spirit of holiness to characterize Christ spiritually, just as according to the flesh uh, characterizes him physically. It characterizes the spirit of holiness that dominated all of his thoughts and actions, his holy obedience, his complete consecration by which he did the will of God that is most clearly seen in his obedience to the cross. Paul says in Philippians, in the call to worship that I read, that he became obedient even unto death, the death of the cross. That is the spirit of holiness. And it's no wonder then that Paul adds, therefore God has exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. The life of Christ, again, is characterized by two stages. Humiliation and exaltation. And the former gave way to the latter. He was the lowly Jesus until after the resurrection. And then not anymore. Then he is exalted to lordship. Uh, Paul, again, instead of... Con uh, the main contrast here is not between the divine and human nature of Jesus Christ, although it's there, but the main contrast is between the two stages in the historical process of his first coming, his incarnate stage and his glorified stage after the resurrection. Remember that Jesus, the body of Jesus is totally different after the resurrection. It is not the same. It is the same in that it is recognizable and it still has the features of a human body and yet somehow he can appear behind locked doors without seeming to open the door. You know, it's different. There is a stage of glorification that is not there before, uh, which is again proof positive of the Father's approval 
on the work of the cross. The final words of verse 4, Jesus Christ our Lord, summarize the, the points of the interpretation. The Son is first Jesus Christ, the historical messianic figure who will fulfill all the covenant promises to Israel. He is second our Lord, the exalted sovereign who is judge over all. So the historical and the official, the humiliation and the exaltation are united in an affirmation of supreme glory. Now in verses 5 through 15 that we're going to go through real quick here and then come back and go through real slow later, tell us of the aim of the gospel. Here is Paul's first use of the word grace in the letter. I, I read this week something by an old uh, scholar by the name of J.H. Jowett, and he defined grace as holy love on the move. That's the first time I'd seen that, and I like that. Holy love on the move. At this place in Romans, it is the particular grace of apostleship that Paul is referring to. And its aim, its aim is to win believing obedience among all the nations. The last expression in verse 5 of the Greek text is for the sake of his name. And that tells us the ultimate goal of God in the proclamation of the gospel. Because sometimes we lose sight of that too. We think, well, the ultimate goal of God in the proclamation of the gospel is to save us from hell. Well, that's kind of a benefit, but that's not the ultimate goal. Well, the ultimate goal then is for people to be saved. That's why the ultimate goal of the gospel is people being saved. No. No, the ultimate goal of the gospel is the glory of Jesus Christ. The proclamation of the gospel glorifies God. Listen, the bottom line of everything in time and eternity is the glory of God. Everything. We proclaim the gospel and urge men to repent and believe, not primarily because they need to be saved from hell, although that's true, but because in their unbelief they fail to give glory to the great God of heaven. They fail to give glory to Jesus Christ. That is cosmic treason. And it, uh, and it is unacceptable before God. So, verse 7, uh, the introduction closes uh, by expressing his desire that grace and peace may be the experience of of the Romans. And it will come from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's important there. He links God our Father with the Lord Jesus Christ. Equal in dignity, equal in stature. Paul could not do that if he did not believe that they stood on the same ground, equal in power and wisdom and authority. The great the great truth of justification by faith alone is at the heart of Paul's letter to the Roman church. And that truth may have, come, may have come as 
or does come as something of a surprise to modern ecclesiastics. We might have expected that the Apostle Paul would have addressed the social problems of Rome because they were many. We might have expected that he would have given a manifesto of the application of of Christianity to their problems, but he did not. Rome was a city of slaves, but Paul didn't preach against slavery. It was a city of, of lust and vice, but he did not aim his mightiest guns at that evil. It was a city of gross economic injustice, but he did not thrust the sword of the Spirit in, into the vials of that plague. It was a city that had been erected on and prospered and fed on the violence of war. But the apostle did not express his views on the immorality of war. It was a city that had enormous pride in the Roman Empire, but he did not appeal to their patriotism. He didn't, he didn't have a God and country day that he set apart in the book of Romans. Apparently, if we are to judge the matter from a strictly biblical standpoint, Paul did not think that social reform in Rome was an evangelical imperative. I say that because sometimes I'm afraid that even among conservative evangelicals, there is more fervor to save America than to save the souls of men. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm a, I'm a patriot, I love this country. But this country doesn't come above the gospel of Jesus Christ. I, I told the, the Bible study yesterday I read last week of a statement that was made by the former mayor of New York, uh, Michael Bloomberg. And in it he said, and without jesting, he said that when he got to the gates of heaven, that, that uh, St. Peter wouldn't even have to interview him. That he would get a pass right on through. And it would be because of his work primarily on gun control. That, that that would give him, that that had, and he used the words, that had earned him a place in heaven. Now, of course, I find that ridiculous on a number of points. But let me ask you a question here. What part of that statement upsets you the most? The politics of it? the Second Amendment to the Constitution, and that he might take your guns, or the theology of it. It is the theology that ought to grieve us, that somehow this man, learned as he is, thinks that he could earn his place in heaven. By any means, by any means, whether it was speaking out against 32-ounce soft drinks, that was another part of it, by the way. Or by attending North Athens Baptist Church for 70 years. You can't earn your way to heaven. The only way to heaven is by the finished work of Jesus Christ. There is no other way. And that's what Paul says next. His summary of the gospel. He, is not, he says he is a debtor, both to the Greeks and the barbarians. He owes them something. What does he owe them? For I am not ashamed 
of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation to those that believe. He owes them the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have a debt. We have a debt to humanity. That debt is to take to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it's the power of God for salvation. Not just because it gives us the warm fuzzies when we talk about it, but because it is the power of God to salvation. And there is no other. The goal of the operation of the divine power is salvation. Spiritual deliverance from the penalty of sin. The wages of sin is death. And the gospel can deliver you from the penalty of sin. From the power of sin. How are you going to live a sanctified life? By the power of the gospel. Worked out every day. And ultimately, it is the gospel that will deliver us from the presence of sin. When we will stand glorified before the throne of God. Paul says to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Not expressing Paul's preference, but simply the way the gospel came. It came first to the Jews. God chose Abraham. And then he worked through the nation of Israel. And Jesus was a Jew. Verse 17 is introduced by the, the particle 4. The, the chain of reasoning continues. Paul is ready to preach the gospel in Rome because he's not ashamed of the gospel. He's not ashamed of the gospel because it's God's power unto salvation. It is God's power unto salvation not because it contains a beautiful code of ethics, because in it there is contained the righteousness that is of God and from God. And to possess that righteousness of God is to be saved. How do we understand the phrase, the righteousness of God? It must be understood forensically. It is a judicial term. It comes over from the, uh, the Old Testament. The forensic sense is that of being in right relation to God. God being regarded as the judge and before whose court all people must stand and be examined. That is the question of time and eternity. How can I be right before a holy God? And the answer is you have to have the righteousness of God. Justification means to be declared righteous by God. Not made righteous. But rather declared righteous. That force is clearly demanded in the Old Testament and the New. So to possess the righteousness of God is to possess a righteousness that God provides and that God approves. And it can only be ours by imputation. God must impute this righteousness to us when we trust and believe in the work of Jesus Christ. Uh, it is the only, the only thing that can satisfy the demands of holy justice. The phrase, the righteousness of God, was that which led Martin Luther into the light of the truth and produced the Protestant Reformation. Someone has said 
The righteousness of God is, the, is that righteousness which His righteousness requires Him to require. The righteousness of God is that righteousness which His righteousness requires Him to require. It is that which, by which God can be both just and the justifier of those that believe in Jesus Christ. This divine righteousness is revealed. It's not simply observed in the gospel. Rather, he means that it is to be seen in the gospel in saving power. It is a righteousness that comes to man not by works, but by faith. And a concise summary of the whole letter of Romans is found in verses 16 and 17. Someone said that the whole law, according to the Jews, was given to Moses in 613 precepts. That in Psalm 15, David reduced them to 11. That Isaiah further diminished them to 6. Micah brought it down to 3. And Isaiah, in a later passage, to 2. And then Habakkuk, brought it down to one. The righteous shall live by faith. The righteous, the just, shall live by faith. The principle of justification by faith alone in the promises of God and not in human endeavor are set forth clearly in the story of Abraham. And then again by Habakkuk. And Romans 1, 16 and 17 is simply another summary of that truth. For Paul, there was no other hope for people than what is found in the gospel. Good works won't do it. You know, working for gun control or working for the NRA, neither one of them will do it. Sacraments won't do it. Church attendance won't do it. Baptism won't do it. Confirmation will not do it. All of those are like Adam's fig leaves. They won't cover our sin. They're useless. It was and is the good news of the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ in blood and cross received by faith that liberates from sin. It alone is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. And so I urge you, I beg you, believe. Come to Jesus. Believe this gospel, for it and it alone is the power of God unto salvation. We're going to